We're going to continue on our series entitled Healing from Rejection from the book of Psalms, chapter 139. And we're going to read verses 14 through 18. Amen. Psalm 139, verses 14 through 18. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand when I awake, I am still with thee. Heavenly Father, in the precious name of Jesus, we praise and thank you, Lord, for allowing us to have the time to partake of your word again. And we just give you the glory and honor, Father, that you would uh, be magnified in everything that we share today, Lord. Let your word permeate our hearts and minds, Father, especially as we're studying the subject of rejection, Lord. We praise and thank you, Father, you bring, bring us divine healing in our mind, body, spirit, and our emotions, Father. Just heal us in every area, Father. And even as there may be things that have occurred over the years that the world would call baggage, we ask you, Father, that that's in us, Father, that you would purge it out of us, Father, because it wounds us, it overwhelms us, it, it holds us down, it limits us. We praise you, Father, that we would no longer be captivated or controlled or manipulated or are de depressed or discouraged by these things, Father, but through this series, you would take those burdens off of us, Father, that we could live to the fullest potential that you have for us. And we just praise and thank you, Father, for this, as well as victory and healing. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. All right, so as I said, we're continuing on our, our series, Healing from Rejection. And it started out, as I said, from our text scripture in the first week that the statement is made, I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that word praise meant to revere or to worship with extended hands. In other words, you're not all, oh, I thank you with your hands down or you're kind of going through the motions or you're kind of bored, but I praise you. I'm excited with uplifted and extended hands. And the thing that you're praising God about is how you're made. You know, you're recognizing that I am wonderfully and fearfully made. In other words, I'm unique. I'm distinct. There's something special about me. I'm not just a waste product or a throwaway or something discarded as junk, but I am something that is precious. If not to anybody else, I am precious in the sight of God. And before we go on to the new, newer things this week, I just want to go back over a few of the concepts that we have already covered. First thing we talked about was rejection versus reality. We need to be able to recognize that just because somebody says no to you or somebody's resistant to you doesn't mean they're rejecting you. Sometimes rejection is good because at times we're unrealistic about the things we desire, the things we want to pursue, or the things we need to have. So sometimes people will, you know, in a wise fashion or in a godly fashion, or sometimes they mean well, they might say it wrong, but sometimes people will resist the things that you're trying to do or what you say you need and we look at it as a rejection when it really is a reality check. So we need to be able to dis determine or distinguish between rejection 
and reality. Then we looked at the root of rejection. Rejection is something that tries to embed itself down deep within us, and it tries to fester and grow. A perfect example of how something will root itself is I have a holly tree in front of my house. Every year, I have to go in and cut out these trees or vines that get, they're in there, they're nested in there, and they wrap themselves around the tree. And the funny thing is, I do this every year, but yet this year, I guess because of the volume of rain, this thing grew so fast, well, it's not one, it's multiple plants, but they grew so fast and wrapped themselves so hard out of the tree that literally at one point, I'm pulling and I can see that if the, these smaller trees were stretched end to end, they would actually be taller than the tree that they were wrapped around. I could literally see the bottom of it down to the ground, but I could see some of the leaves extending to the top of the tree. And here's the thing. Even though it was rooted at the same base foundation as the tree, it was hidden at first until you look at it closely. And the other part about it is that it was wrapping itself around the tree and it was basically stealing nourishment from it. It could literally have choked out the tree. And the hard part is, as I was trying to dispose of it, even at some of the places where I would cut it at the root to pull it out of the tree, I literally had on thick work gloves I was able to pull some of them out, but some of them were wrapped so thick and so intertwined around each other that it was like a rope was built from them. Amen? I mean, at one point, it was so bad, I had to take breaks to drink. <sighs> one of them was so thick, each one of the, 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 um, the, the trees was about thick as my index finger. In some places, there were three or four intertwined with each other and then wrapped around the tree. So in a couple places, I had both hands with work gloves, thick leather work gloves, yanking on them with all my might. At one point, I pulled them forward, held it. Trey came up behind me, grabbed it. We're both straining and pulling, and it didn't want to come at first. But if you look at it from the ground, it's a tiny little tree. But the process of what it could have done in that tree was a work to purge out of that, the life of that tree. Amen? And it's the same with roots of bitterness in us. Amen? It might seem to be a small thing, but if you let that thing grow, if you let something water it like the rain did that plant, and by watering I'm talking about other things that bother you that you don't deal with, people keep raining on your parade, these things keep going on and on and on, that thing can grow, intertwine itself with other fences, wrap itself around, and then what does it do? It starts to choke off the tree, the main plant, which is us. Amen? So we have to be watchful. And that's the thing. I did a major task last week of cutting out this tree and disposing of it. So now I can see that my holly tree is sustained and is healthy. But the reality is I can't put down poison or anything to kill that plant at the root because by putting down poison to kill it, I could kill the tree too. Therefore, that tells me that even though I cut the thing at the root, I mean at the, the ground level, because I didn't get the root, I got to be watchful every season because it's going to try to grow back. We got to be watchful sometimes. And you can say, hey, Brian, won't you get out the roots? Well, that's a prickly tree. <laughs> I ain't trying to get up under there. I'm sitting there with, I actually put on a, a hooded sweatshirt so it's a hot day, I'm baking, I'm sweating, 
but I put on a hooded sweatshirt because spiders and stuff were getting on me. The things are holly tree, so all these pricks are sticking me in every angle. So sometimes you can't necessarily root everything out. So in those cases where you can't root everything out, sometimes you have to just be watchful and every once in a while get in there, do a little rooting out, a little pruning, a little trimming to dispose of. So <laughs> that's how the root of rejection works. Amen. And unfortunately, some cases, the roots of rejection are placed within us back in our childhood or through our generations or through our heritage, as we saw last week. The wounds of rejection is something we talked about. It, it, it starts out and it wants to work in you and the enemy tries to pour salt in that wound or put poison on that wound or try to make it fester so it keeps growing, growing, growing until it kills you. Amen. It kills you inside emotionally. It kills you inside spiritually. That's why you see so many suicides, so many depressed people on pills, so many people that are uh, in drugs and alcohol, people that are feeling empty. I saw somebody on Facebook last night talking about how empty she felt. Amen. These are the things that wounds will do to your spirit. So we have to be watchful and we have to take care of them and we need to administer the ointment of the word of God, amen, in the presence of God to purge ourselves of those things. We looked at some of the manifestations of rejection last week. You know, self-image issues, insecurity, self-hatred, promiscuity, self-deprecation, jealousy towards other people, covetousness, um, Seeking acceptance through others. There's a lot of manifestations. And then we started going into types of rejection. There is heritage related. There is generational related. Sometimes you deal with stuff like in your social economic backgrounds. There's a lot of different forms of rejection. So this week we're going to continue on by talking about the timing and the manner of conception. Because that sometimes leads to stuff as well. And by that, I mean that the, the timing and the manner of your conception sometimes affects people throughout their entire lives. Because, for instance, especially in this day and age, you see a lot of people that are the product of an unexpected or an unwed pregnancy that is not desired. Sometimes there's situations where even in a marital relationship, people are not ready for kids yet or they think they're done with having kids and the woman gets pregnant, it's like, I wasn't ready for this. I didn't need this. This is interfering with my career or the things I wanted to do. And now I'm burdened down with another child again. And what you have to realize in situations like this is that a lot of the emotions that the mother is experiencing, the fetus inside of her growing can sense these emotions as well. I mean, if they tell you to sing and to rub your belly and to say good things and to nourish yourself properly and to try to remain peaceful through your pregnancy. There's a reason for that. The fetus can sense these things, and that's why sometimes a baby will come out and it's jittery or it's, has, um, it's colicky or something like that. And you might think, oh, it's the food they're taking in, but sometimes it could be while they were in, even while they were in the womb, there's so much anxiety and depression and fear and all these elevated emotions going on that that baby has been basically bathed in some of those things or, or, or the offset of the spiritual things behind that, even in the womb. Amen? Hallelujah. So that baby's coming out of the womb, and they're, they're fidgety because they've been fidgety inside of you because of you being fidgety. Another type of rejection, too, is the father rejects the mother upon learning of the pregnancy, or the father rejects the child early in its life. 
And I've seen a, a thousand times over, well, I would have been a good father, this and that, but she did nothing but criticize me and speak bad about me. She did everything she could to prevent me from getting to the child. Well, there's court systems, amen? Work it out. Don't let the other person, whether it's the woman or the man, don't let that person impede you from being in the life of that child because the, light, the child grows up with a spirit of rejection a lot of times. I've also heard cases... Matter of fact, I actually heard this, um, uh, DMX was a product of this, um, where the mother and the father abandoned their children to be raised by the grandparents, relatives, foster care, adoption, and other places. One of the things that, you know, as, as we've known in the news, he's been arrested, I think he said 30 times that he's been, off the top of his head, DMX said, I've probably been arrested like 30 times in the last few years. And he's talking to the person, and at one point, he finally broke down crying. I mean, this is this tough rapper, you know, macho man, off a dog, trash talking, and broke down crying. He's like, I was devastated when my grandmother died. And they're like, well, why was that so important? He said, because I was always her little man. No matter what I did, I was, I was her little man. I was her baby. And he said, when I was seven years old, my mom put, put, just put me in a, in a group home. He's like, that's my mom. She threw me away. She's like, she put me in a group home. He's like, why was I that bad? Why was I that dysfunctional? That she threw me away. She made me feel like I was blank. And this is at the root of all the drug addiction and all the stuff. And even in relationships, he's like the woman of his life. He loves her, but he has this addiction to women because he said that the one he even loves, every time we argue, I'm done with you, I'm done with you. He's like, she throws me away like I'm so you see this, the roots, no matter how tough somebody might seem to be on the outside, and no matter how rich and famous and everything they might seem to be, if these things are undealt with, it could devastate a life. So they actually recommended over the course of this program, uh, he's in a situation now where he's estranged from his own son. They threw arms around each other, broke down crying and everything, and he's telling his son, tears streaming out of his face. I love you. I love her. I never stop loving you. I will always love you. And your mom did this and said that. And, but I never told you I didn't love you. And he's breaking out crying. And his son says, I want to reconcile. I want to have a, recon I want to have a good relationship. But you need to detox. He's like, no, you don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me I got to detox. So all that love that he had for his son and all the rejection his son felt. And as much as he loved his son, he said, I'm not willing to detox and get off the drugs to be in life. So now his son is still a product of that rejection. And all his, his ex-wife, his son, his family and friends, they said they're all waiting for that call for him to drug overdose or get killed. So rejection in the womb. We see in him, it started out with him as a young man, from his perspective, thrown away in a group home. Then he Raises up, gets famous, has a child, and he's got multiple children, I think seven, but they all feel rejected, and the pattern continues. And it started from a childhood age. Amen? Sometimes we see postpartum depression causes a mother to distance herself emotionally from the child as well. So that's something that has to be watched. And, you know, that's something where you need to minister to the mother, but maybe the husband, the father, the family members need to step in while she's dealing with that and she's getting... Um, herself treated 
or counsel spiritually and emotionally to come through that postpartum because sometimes that's chemical in nature. But everybody else shouldn't be sitting around allowing the child to go through the process of being rejected, amen? Step in and say, hey, you know, mommy's going through something. You, you give them the nurturing. Don't let the pattern continue. We have to be watchful about that. So I'm just going to look at the word and one of the things it says about rejection from an early age. Deuteronomy 23 1 through 4 says, He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they met you not with bread and water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Baer or Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. All right, in this situation, we see that the Old Testament was pretty rough. Amen? It says that if you are an illegitimate child, you cannot enter into congregation of the Lord. Wow. Like, it's not my fault. <laughs> But yet the Lord wanted everybody coming to the congregation to be so pure. He says, if you were born out of illegitimacy, you cannot enter into the congregation of the Lord. And it even goes on and says, even unto your 10th generation, follow you. Wow, that's harsh. Not only will I not accept you, but 10 generations of offspring cannot come into my congregation. Wow. The churches will be empty. <laughs> Today, if we had a problem with illegitimate people being in the church, not just the, church, the current kids, but some of the adults wouldn't be in the congregation. So we see this very hard. It says the Ammonites and the Moabites because you know, that's a social thing, because they didn't bless the children of, of Israel as they left out of Egypt. They can't come in. Then it talks about a man that's hurting the, or wounded or cut off or in the lower parts. If he's wounded or ain't right or normal down there. He's not allowed in. So the Old Testament was very, very harsh. Amen? And you can look at this as a societal form of rejection where it's considered unfavorable and even ungodly to be born out of those circumstances. But thank God that even though that was just something that was prominent then and even endorsed by the Lord, Thank God now to this day and generation, we're under the laws of grace where Jesus Christ says, everybody come in. I mean, the church would, like I said, <laughs> it would be devastated in this day and age if there's the same rules and regulations, amen, as opposed to the spirit of liberty. But you have to understand, I mean, I'm sure you can relate to the fact that there must have been a, a serious spirit of rejection upon the people that were in that. I mean, you're talking about the, the scarlet letter, I remember reading that in high school, where if you were an adulteress or adulterer, they put a scarlet A on your, your forehead, and for the rest of your life, you were marked as somebody who was an adulterer. And anybody who was your child would be, wouldn't be necessarily physically marked, but people would know that's the child of the person with the A on their head. This is even worse, amen? Ten generations of people, just because of something that happened, an indiscretion, maybe a drunken night, 
Maybe people started something the wrong way and repented, but yet the children that are product of that still have to live that out with that burden. But thank God for the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ that we don't have to be subject to that anymore. Thank God for that. But that shows us, too, that in this day and age, sometimes people have that kind of mindset. You want to look down on people because they weren't necessarily born the way that you wanted them to be born. Or maybe think people didn't come out of the situations the way you wanted it. Who are we to judge them and say, you can't enter in? I saw something the other day. We read, I read these books years ago by um, this author, Wendy Alec. And it was called The Chronicles of Brothers. And it was basically books that she wrote after a series of prophetic dreams about Lucifer before the fall and everything. It's really great book series. So I just happened to go on her Facebook page last night to see, hey, is the next book finally coming out because it's been years. Um, and anyway, there's a guy on there that's an atheist. He was a professing atheist. And he said, I just want to know, are there any other atheists out there that like this series like I do? And people started asking questions like, well, why do you read this? You're not even a Christian. This is about Lucifer and God and the angels and stuff. You, don't even, you think all this is nonsense, so why do you even read it? And he's like, well, I just think it's a good series of books. You know, the action and the imagery is just really good books. I really like it. But some of the people were coming on harsh and like, what right do you have to read this and this? And just getting nasty. And finally, some people stepped in and like, did it ever occur to you that maybe through this, and it's not guaranteed, but maybe through this, this could lead him to the Lord. Why are you people criticizing him? If he wants to read it, it ain't bothering him, let him read. <laughs> let the man read. Why does somebody have to fit perfectly into your mindset of what somebody should be or what the crowd should be or what the audience should be for you to accept? And that's the exact problem of why people aren't coming to church today because the people in the church always got something to say or always looking at somebody a certain way. Leave them be. If an atheist enjoys the book, I'll buy him a copy. The next one come out, hey, give me your address, brother. I'll keep, I guarantee you I will keep them books coming. Because one day, you never know. He's an atheist now, but one day he might go through a sickness, a disease, something that hurts his heart, something that traumatizes him or, or wounds him. And all of a sudden, all those books, wait a minute. They said in the book, if you pray that God hears you, well, nothing else is working. Maybe I should try it. Whoa. My life is changing. That could lead him to salvation. Amen? <laughs> so sometimes th that spirit of, of rejection and the mindset that people have just gets in the way of what God could do. All right, we see another one in the book of Jeremiah. And this is kind of what I referred to last week when I said it bothers me at times where the young um, teenagers and young adults saying stuff like, blank my life. I'm just like, how can you ever let that come out of your mouth, even as a fad, even as a, a phrase? I just don't understand that. Amen. Hallelujah. So we see here Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18 says, Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bare me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide. Because he slew me not from the womb or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame. Talk about a bad day or attitude. Whew. 
I mean, just look at what this guy's saying. <laughs> he says, curse it be my birthday. And then do not let the day in which I was born be blessed. Then he says, the guy that came and told my father, because back in those days, you didn't have the man in the delivery room watching the birth. The man was outside and you had a midwife. I was there when Kyle trained. I basically delivered Trey because they had a, sh- a shift change. And I kept yelling, nurse, nurse, nurse. They weren't coming, so I basically delivered him. <laughs> Kyle, I, I was pacing for both of them. Trey, I pretty much was, I should have got paid because I was doing all the work. But I was in there. And back then, though, the man was outside just waiting for the news. Did I have a boy? Did I have a girl? Is everything fine? Everybody healthy? So this guy saying, not only cursed the day I was blessed, but he said the person that came to my dad that said, hey, you have a son? He's saying, curse the person that gave my dad that news. I'm like, wow. He said, curse the man that told my dad that you have a son. Then he said, not only do I curse that guy, but he said, let him be as the man that God overthrew the city like the cities of Nineveh and stuff like that, when God said, I'm going to judge it, I'm, or Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to destroy those tr- cities. He said, let that man be the same as those cities, that when God came to pour out his wrath and destroy them, they didn't repent, so he destroyed them. He said, let the man that announced my birth be like them, destroyed. I was like, wow. <laughs> then he goes on and says, he basically said, you should have aborted me. He says, he's cursing because you slew me not from the womb. He basically said, you should have boarded me. And he said, or that my mother would have been my grave. In other words, I could have been a stillborn baby. So this guy is literally cursing every angle of his birth. And unfortunately, even though this is the mindset that he had because of the state of Israel at the time, there are some people that have been treated so poorly by their families that in a sense they despise their birth as well. But you have to realize, this is a mentality that the enemy will prey upon, and he uses that to get people depressed to the point where they commit suicide, or like I said, they get strung out on drugs and alcohol. In cases where you see like the Columbine shootings and things like that, you get them incensed to the point that they go out and do some mass act out of rage, amen? The rage is really born out of rejection. I hate the circumstances of my birth. I hate my life. Or I hate people, and they go out of it. But you don't really can't come out of hate, hating people unless really there's been some kind of re, um, action or trauma you experience from people or rejection that you receive from people to get to that place. Amen? So basically, this guy is cursing every angle in terms of his birth. But you have to realize that, like I said, the enemy is preying upon that. Well, like I I really want to tell you is that although the circumstances of your birth or your background may not have been what you would have desired, it could have been destructive, dysfunctional, you could have been somebody that was rejected, never felt like you were precious commodity in your family, but the, the, the truth of the situation is that from God's perspective, you are not an accident and God has a purpose for your life, amen? Jesus was born during a time where they were killing off babies. Moses was born in a time where they were killing off babies. You could have said it was accidental that they survived or accidental the times that they were living in. But the reality is there was a purpose and plan that God had for them even in the midst of all that hardship and that sorrow. 
And I was even minded of two people, um, actually three people, who came out of what you would have seen as circumstances where maybe they could have cursed uh, the times of their birth. James Robeson, um, he's been awesome in terms of preaching the word of God over the years. And he's blessed people with food and water all over the planet. His mother wanted to abort him, but the abortionists refused to do it. Fred Hammond recently said that his mother said she attempted to abort him twice. This is a world-renowned gospel singer, amen, who is now blessing audiences worldwide in song. He could have been aborted. James Robeson could have been aborted. Um, Donnie McClurkin, he's a pastor right now, another worldwide singer that has blessed people all over the planet for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abused, he went to somebody for help. Uh, and counseling out of, out of the abuse that he suffered, that person abused him too. Amen? Then he you know, went to an alternate lifestyle for a while, but thank God through the Holy Ghost and the power of Jesus, he's been redeemed and set free, and now he's pastoring and healing people, and he's singing the word of God all over the planet. These are people that you could have said, oh, I can curse the day of my birth. I want to be out here. Amen? But yet God turned all that misery, all that dysfunction, all that hurt, and all that hardship around, and he's now using those people to touch the planet. Also, I have a video, just think about it at home. I have a DVD of this guy. He was born with no limbs. Can you imagine? It's one thing to have a leg amputated or to be born with some kind of defect. This guy was born with no arms and no legs. He preaches the gospel worldwide. It's incredible. Incredible. But think of the mindset. First, his parents had the hat. He was born that way. And I think, you know, I'm not, talk, I'm not saying they were trying to do something criminal, but things I've seen, I think they were trying to kind of like hint, like we need to put him away or his lifespan might not necessarily be that good. So you might want to consider a couple of things we could do to cut this off in the track his parents were like we're going to love him we're going to nurture him and no we're not putting him away after his birth they raised him up in a loving home they told him that he was precious unto god and had a purpose and now he's blessing people with the gospel amen hallelujah so the enemy may see seek to destroy people might seek to destroy but god has a precious purpose for everybody that was ever born in this world amen Hallelujah. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. All right, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, amen, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And shows us that he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Amen. People argue about the age of the earth. Those who believe in young earth say the earth is only about 6,000 years old. Then you have scientists that will say it's more like, you know, millions of years old. I wasn't there. But regardless of the time and age of the earth, 
It says here that God has blessed us in spiritual places and chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So before, whether you're young or old earth, thousands of years, millions of years, regardless, God, even before you were born in this, not this century, but the previous century, we're going through another century. Whew. But even before then, God saw you and said, I have chosen you in me. Wow. God was thinking about you at least thousands of years before you were even born. Amen? And you were worrying about, oh, what do people think of me? Well, God was thinking about you. And not only did he think about you, but it says he chose you. So I not only thought of you, but I saw you were worthy to be selected by me for a purpose and a plan that I have for you. Amen? Then it talks about us being predestined or predestinated unto the adoption of children. That word predestinated means to determine or ordain in advance. Before you were even born, God thought of you, chose you, and then he says, I have ordained or sanctioned you for this divine purpose. And part of that purpose says that he had predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Amen? Hallelujah. To himself. So whether you were born in an illegitimate circumstance or born as a product of rape, whether somebody tried to abort you, whatever it may be, they may have had a plan, they may have had a thought, they might have thought this is not the proper timing for you to be here or I don't want children or I don't want any more children. But the reality is it doesn't matter what they think. God knew you, thought of you, chose you, ordained you, and has predestinated you that you were meant to be here. So that settles it. Amen? doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. God says, I wanted you to be here. And last time I checked, he is the author and finisher of the fate of all mankind. Then it goes down further at the end, and it says that to, we thank him for the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. That word accepted means to be endowed with special honor. Endowed with special honor. It also means to be highly favored. So people could talk about you, dismiss you, tell you you're not this, you're not that. I don't like you. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. They can say whatever they want, but God says, I have called you highly favored. And then it says he has endowed us with special honors. That's a nice thing to hear. Amen. <laughs> you know, some people say, oh, well, I never win awards for anything. I've never achieved much. I never was great at scholastics or, or whatever. I'm never noticed on the job. When I was in the classroom, I was never noticed. But we see here, God says, not only have I foreknown you, chosen you, ordained you, sanctioned you, and adopted you, but he says, I have endowed you with special honor. So you are an honored individual from the perspective of God. That's a great thing to hear. So we looked at the circumstances of our births, amen? Like I said, we cannot control it, but although the people around us may have felt that they were in control and they could deem whether or not we're this or that, the reality is all of us were just nothing more than really pawns on the chessboard, and God, if he wanted us to be here and cause it to happen, 
That is the final decision. He had the final decision for you to be here. And no matter how people perceive you or treat you, you are glorious in the sight of God and endowed with special uh, favor and honor. So the circumstances of your birth were defined by God. But that does not change the fact that a lot of us experience rejection in childhood. You know, I, I dealt with a lot of that. Now, I call it middle child or ghost syndrome. <laughs> you're not the first child, you're not the last child. You're not the baby, and you're not the firstborn. You know, and, and they used to always have this thing, like I would call relatives, and they, they, would, they would say my brother's name, or, and, and I'm like, he's overseas. And it'd still be like, Keith, Keith, Keith I'm, the, I'm the first son. Like, I've, I've helped some of them financially, but they would still favor my brother over me. It's just the reality that's always going to be there. And I can't change it. But the thing is, I was able to rise above it how many people can't. And they still struggle with that, and that troubles them, and it torments them, or it discourages them. There's a lot of people go through that. You know, I call it ghost syndrome, too, where it's like your forgotten commodity, where they always, they never, it's like you're invisible. You know? And a lot of people suffer with that as well. And in the case of some people, it devastates their life. It's a shame that anybody would have to deal with that, but it is unfortunately a reality. So my thing is you may not be able to change the circumstances of how people look at you or treat you or sometimes forget about you, but you can get to the place where you're in God and he can fulfill that emptiness. Amen. Hallelujah. And it comes, childhood rejection comes a lot of times within the family structure, but it also can occur in school. Like I said, the circumstances of your birth, it could come through divorce, bullying. There's all these different forms. We even see that in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16. When Samuel was coming to anoint the next king, <laughs> we see one of the biggest forms of rejection that you could have within the family structure. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 12. And the Lord said unto Samuel, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. And thou shalt anoint unto me him who I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, 
Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. That's some messed up stuff. Amen. The prophet Samuel, who is so intimidated by his presence that the elders of the town said, Are you coming here peaceably? They were scared about what he had to say. Because if he came in and called down judgment on the town, they knew. It's going to be a fire sale soon. <laughs> Whatever he pronounces is going to happen. So he said, are you coming here peaceably? He said, yeah, I'm coming peaceably. And then he calls everybody out to the sacrifice and says, Jesse, bring all your sons. And Jesse dismissed David so much, amen, looked down on him so much that when this prophet told him, bring your sons, he didn't even call him for amen. He left him out in the, in the sheepfold. So we had to go through the process of, Wasting his time, evaluating all the seven sons, and then said, what's going on here? None of them are the person that God told me to anoint. And it was only then, when Samuel pressed him on the issue, that he finally saw fit to call his son David forward. And that's, the story goes on and on and on and on through the generations. Amen? That God looks at somebody within a family and says, I have a, I have a special purpose for that person. <clears throat> but yet, even the, own, the, the very family members that are raising them and supposedly nurturing them says, eh, I'll keep him out of the mix. But we see here, thank God, that God looks at the heart. People might look at things a certain way, but God says, I look at the heart of the person. And what you see as being worthy of being ordained as the next king is far from what I'm looking for. I want the one who is out there in the sheepfold, the one who has intimacy with me, the one that has faith in me, that's the one I want to select. So that's a good thing that we can all learn from as well. We may not necessarily be the person that stands out in the family, that gets all the accolades, gets the special favor or love or the recognition, but as long as God is favoring us, that's all we really need to worry about, amen? Because God, like I said, if he has a purpose and plan for your life, actually, I need to change that. God does have a purpose and a plan for your life. We need to just position ourselves that despite how people may view us, that we don't allow ourselves to become so focused on the mistreatment or the neglect that we can't possibly see ourselves as worthy of something that God may have for us. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. All right, we see another example in the book of Genesis, 37, verses 1 through 4. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father the evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. 
He starts some trouble with that coat. <laughs> he's like, this is the baby. He's the last one. I'm going to give him a special coat. Now, he's walking around with a coat of many colors, and they got, like, <laughs> burlap sack. <laughs> All, you know, t- you know, just dirty and dingy and probably hand-me-down. He makes him a special coat. So favoritism in the family could cause some problems, too. Now, it shouldn't lead to the point of hatred where they fake the death of their sibling and sell them into slavery. I hope it don't go that far. On these reality shows and on the news sometimes, we see some stuff like, whoa. Um, I'm not going to say it's impossible in this day and age, but we see here that sometimes there is a dynamic of favoritism that can lead to some issues among the siblings. Amen? So we really should treat them all the same way. Amen? And... And the thing here, though, is even though the brothers sold him into slavery by faking his death, that's such a cruel thing. It's not just the cruelty of what they did to him, but really the cruelty that they went back to dad and said, hey, he's dead. So it was like a twofold form of cruelty. It was almost like they were getting him back as well. You prize him over us. Yeah, now your prized son is dead. Now you're stuck with us. So... It's kind of like doubly evil. But even though they sold him into slavery, nothing was allowed that God did not permit. And we know from the story that he was later on elevated up to be a governor over the nation of Israel. And the very thing they did for evil to destroy him actually set the stage in God for him to get to that position where he could not only save Egypt, but end up saving his very brothers and his father from the famine that hit that land. So God could do the same thing in us. People may have looked at us a certain way. There may have been favoritism within the family that did not put you at the top of the the priority chart. But yet God can use those circumstances or the mistreatment or the way that your siblings, siblings perceive you in a manner in which he will elevate you in due time. But the thing is, one of the things, two of the things we see, one thing is between David and Joseph, notice they were two of the boys in the sheepfold. <laughs> they were both in the sheepfold. See, God is, you might not be, Shepherds were pretty much seen, looked look down upon. Everybody wanted to be the tradesmen and the warriors and stuff like that. The guys out there with the sheep, they looked down on them, you know. But yet, the thing that people look down regularly, God saw that as somebody that has the time to be in my presence and I can speak into their lives and I can nurture and train them and I can prepare them for the future. So even if your family positions you in something that doesn't seem to be favorable, God can use that time or that situation to get you into his plan and purposes for your life. Amen? Hallelujah. So he elevated him up to be the governor of Egypt, and it led to the saving of the very family members that wanted to destroy him. Another passage that I see in terms of childhood rejection, Psalm 22, 6 through 11. It says, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. 
They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. All right, so we see here, look how he's looking at himself. I am a worm and no man. People do that to you, amen? Try to get you in a position where you feel like I'm nothing special or I'm just nothing. I just feel so small, so busted up, so broken down, so dismissed, amen, that there's nothing special about me. He looked at himself as not even being a full man. I'm not even a man. I'm just half a man. I'm a reproach. People look down their nose at me. I'm despised of people. Then he talked about people looking at him and laughing. It's one thing to laugh, but they said they laugh me to scorn. It's like you're the joke. You know, laughing you to scorn is one thing to laugh behind your back, but usually somebody's laughing you to scorn is kind of like they're openly mocking you. Look at you. You're nothing but a joke to me. But the thing that's good about it, he took all that and says, even though they shoot out their lips at me, they laugh at me, they shake their head and even say stuff regarding my relationship with God. He says, from his perspective, I was cast upon thee from the womb. And from the time that I was nursing on my mother, you know, I realized that thou art my God from my mother's belly. So people can view you any way they want. But yet, if we had the mindset that God had his hand upon my life, even from the time that I was in the womb and immediately upon me being delivered into this world, God had his eyes on me and God had his hands upon me, no matter what people say, do, or no matter how they laugh at me. Amen. We can have a blessed life. So we have to focus on that. Focus on the goodness of God. Focus on the promises of God and realize that some of those people may never change. Amen. They may always perceive you negatively. But yet we realize that we have been watched and loved and nurtured by God. Even from the time of our birth, that's all the nurturing that we really need. Amen. You don't have to be feeling empty about how people treat you. You don't have to be feeling, you know, down and feel like you're half a human being because of the way that people view you. Amen. We can raise our heads up and have a godly form of confidence, not an egotistical pride, but we can have godly confidence that he's going to work something out in our lives and we are treasured in him. So he has something he's going to do in us. Amen. And no, no thing that they can say or do or think can hinder us from succeeding in God because he's more powerful than any of they. Amen? Hallelujah. So we can trust God in that. Like I said, we talked about the dynamic of people and family members. Here's a couple of passages of scripture relating to that. Psalm 2710 says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. That's an awesome promise. And... Especially in this day and age, like I said, there's times where people don't treat you right within the family dynamic. We're in a generation where a lot of kids, uh, their parents are out partying more than the kids. Their parents aren't taking responsibility to the kids or their parents are acting like the kids or worse. Amen. 
But even though your earthly parents may not necessarily treat you right, God himself is a father to you. That's our reality. We're only lent, really lent to our parents for a season. And they're being afforded an, an awesome privilege to be the ones that God has trusted to raise us up, knowing him, and to be the ones that can point us to our future and say, here's some of the things that I see in you and some of the things that you can do. But the reality is, even more so than they belong to us, our children belong to God. So the good thing for those who haven't been nurtured by their parents is that even though you may not have had natural parents to do it, you have a heavenly father that is more than capable of doing it. But you have to take the time to seek his face. Amen. Hallelujah. Not look at the circumstances and the dysfunction and the neglect or the abuse that's coming from your earthly parents. And instead, look to your heavenly father. Amen. And also, there might be people in your life that could be mentors to you who, you know, pastors and ministers and people that you can go to that can support you and play that role in your life. You know, one of my, uh, my, a few of my best friends' dads, I always saw them as people that helped point at me to my future. We didn't really have any deep conversations about college or business or anything like that. However, I saw the way that they lived their lives, and that was something that spoke to me like, hey, I can have a house like this, or I could drive a car like this, or I could have this kind of lifestyle and family. It doesn't have to be all this dysfunction. I saw how they conducted themselves, and, you know, it was more, more so than even the material stuff that they had. I just saw, like, how I respect them and the way that they carried themselves. They weren't drunk and falling out and talking trash and getting into fights. Just the way they conducted themselves gave me something to aspire to. Amen. So that's something that we can all do. Your father and mother may even forsake you, but the Lord himself will take you up. Amen. In other words, he'll take responsibility in terms of your nurturing. Amen. I like, always like Psalm 68. Oops, it's right there. Psalm 68, 5 through 6, talking about God. Amen. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the, wilder, of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. And that's awesome. God setteth the solitary in families. Some people are solitary because they don't have that family dynamic. Amen? You know, they, they come out of, like we saw um, with DMX, they come out of a group home situation or they, or they were orphaned or they were in foster care or they were in such a dysfunctional family that they really don't understand a true family dynamic. So they feel empty and they feel alone and like I have nobody to help me. I'm in this by myself. But we see here that God says he said if the solitary in families. And that's actually kind of like one of the things I experienced because my, with my parents dying so young, when I was... Um, in my senior year of college, that's when my mom passed. My dad had already been dead for a few years. So it's like, I really felt like it's me against the world now. And I had aunts and uncles, but it wasn't like I was coming on breaks and going to their house. Or it's, I can't blame them because it's not like I went to them and say, hey, I need somebody to step in the role as my mother and father right now. You know, it's, I just felt I had nothing to fall back on. So I was just like... I can't afford to mess up. I can't be drinking and driving. I can't be getting in fights. I can't get arrested. Not that I was going out doing anything that should have led to that anyway. 
But I was like, it just kind of rattles your cage at that age that I have no parents. Because there's so many different things. Like getting my college degree, okay, what's my next step? I got the piece of paper, but do I take that job or do I consider that job? Or do I just take a couple months and work a summer job while I'm figuring out what I'm doing next? Like, I didn't have any of those luxuries. And like I said, it just changes your whole outlook on life when you realize that, okay, if I did something stupid, I have somebody to go back to. And now it's like, I don't have anybody. So it's just kind of hard to explain. It wasn't like I was trying to get in trouble where I would have needed it. But just the fact that I knew I didn't have it, it, it shakes you at that age. You know, it just changes everything. But one of the things I found quickly as I got saved in my senior year, second semester, right before I got my degree, that's when I got saved. I met Pam and I got saved. And from the moment I did that, I did feel immediate sense of family. You know, with Pastor Granite and um, Bob and Florence Hand, who are our weekly Bible study teachers. I mean, I just felt a sense of family right away. Like, I would go to church on Sundays and take notes. And if I had questions about the scripture, Pastor Granite, I understand this. Or I don't agree with this. Why are you saying that? You know, I, I don't see that. And he just sat me down. And he just, it wasn't like I asked him to be a spiritual father or a mentor or anything. And neither did I really ask Bob and Florence Han or there's a Castillo family. We actually had the, the first Bible study at their house. It wasn't like I asked any of them to be big brothers or sisters or aunts and uncles or family. It's just, it was just so natural how everything transitions into the point where I had a sense of family. It was just something God did. So, and that shows it. God doesn't have to manufacture it or set it up where it feels phony. It was something where God set me from being alone in the world, which is what I felt, especially at my graduation. But he positioned me where I felt like I've got a network of people surrounding me now that I can go to and they love me. There's no, you know, Favor, favoritism, there's no respect of persons, there's no priority chart on, well, the two of you are going through, I'll go to him first. I didn't sense any of that. It was just pure, and it was born out of the Spirit of God. It's just something that I always treasure. So that's why, really, it's, it's kind of like how Pam and I have been with people throughout the years, too. You know, that's one of the first things I've said, too, like when I've talked to people and come in here. And people actually remarked this in our Good Friday services. And when they visit, you know, they may, may not stay necessarily. But one of the things they always say when they come in here is like, oh, I immediately felt like the warmth. I always felt like I was among family. Because that was the way I came into the body of Christ. It's the way I've always really been as a person growing up with a mother who grew up on a farm. I had country values. So it's just something that's really been in me that was emphasized even further once I became a part of the body of Christ. All right, so um, childhood rejection. Like I said, that's something that we all deal with. Now, um, the next thing the Lord placed on my heart is that sometimes people experience rejection due to physical attributes. Physical attributes. People are just funny like that. Amen? And I am not saying the ha-ha funny. I'm saying it's annoying that people do that. Leviticus 21, 17 through 21. 
speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. A blind man or a lame, or he that hath a flat nose, or anything superfluous, or a man that is broken-footed, or broken-handed, or crook-backed, or dwarf, and that have a blemish in his eye, or be scurvy, or scabbed, or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest, shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish, he shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. Once again, the Old Testament is harsh. <laughs> it says if you got a blemish, you will not approach the altar of God to give an offering. If you're blind, that's kind of harsh. Like you could be blind from birth defect or you didn't do anything wrong. You're a nice person, but you're blind. You can't come to the offering to present an offering. From the goodness of your heart, you can't come present it because you're blind. You have a flat nose. I don't know if this is just you were born with a flat nose or maybe you broke your nose and now your nose is flat. But they're saying if you have a flat nose, you cannot come and give the offering. I might be in a little trouble with this Native American nose I have. <laughs> I got the Native American nose. It's one of the, what was it, the nickel, Indian nickel or something? I got the same nose as that guy. Amen. Um, it says you have a broken foot or broken hand, you can't do it. You have a crook back. <laughs> you got a crooked back, you can't come get an offering. <laughs> a dwarf. And the person can't help if they were born and they're, they're, they're small in stature. They didn't do anything wrong, but you can't come to the offer. A blemish in your eye. That's like if somebody's blind or has a, a, a cater, cataract or something in their eye. If somebody has an issue with, you know, so they're going beyond being blind in both eyes. If you've got a cataract or glaucoma or, you know, you lost an eye or, or you have a blindness in one eye, you cannot come to the altar. Scurvy, scabbed. Uh, I don't like that last one. <laughs> Stone's broken, yikes. Um, but you cannot come and give an offering before the Lord. So we see here that there was basically rejection upon people that had some kind of physical brokenness, blemish, or deformity. They could not come before God to present offerings. But I thank God that it talks about us now in the New Testament that we can give the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving praise unto the Lord. And it doesn't say that you have to be perfect physically. You don't have to be the most beautiful. You don't have to be uh, perfectly intact physically. God just says, come to me and give me your sacrifices of praise or the sacrifice of your efforts to be a blessing to others. These are all uh, forms of sacrifice that we can present before God without any kind of restrictions on us. So thank God for the blessings now. And here's the thing in the Old Testament, it says if you're of the family of Aaron, it's talking about the high priest and his family, you could not come in. Now we all are high priests according to the word of God in the New Testament. We're all priests that can come before Jesus Christ at every, any time to offer up sacrifices of praise and other sacrifices before him. And there's no restrictions. So that's like a beautiful thing. Amen? Beautiful thing. 
Let's see what God says about us physically as well. In uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So look at that. We are his workmanship. I like this, amen. We are workmanship of, of God. That word workmanship t- talks about us being the product or the fabric that God has worked with, with his hands, amen. He has manufactured us. And we see here that no matter what the circumstances of our birth were, no matter what things were like in our childhood, no matter what kind of peer pressure or things we may have encountered in our family, in our schools, out there in the streets, no matter what we've encountered, we see here that God says, I see you as my workmanship, and you were created in Christ unto good works. Amen. God has something good that he has planned to not only be in your life, but to be a byproduct of your life that he sees. And he says he has ordained before that you're going to walk in those things. So the enemy tries to fill you with rejection and hurt and all these forms of trauma to prevent you from walking in the things that God has already uh, ordained for your life. But yet, if we allow ourselves to rise above these things, to let go of the hurt and the pain of rejection and the emotional baggage that we're carrying, God can position us, as we see here, to walk in all those things. But the choice is ours. Are we going to sit back and just say, oh, this person mistreated me. That person did this. This person did that. Amen. Are we going to sit here focusing on that until the day we die? Or are we going to let those things go and let our minds get stayed on Christ? Thank him that despite all the terrible things that may have occurred, that he has at least got us to the point where we're still standing. Amen? Able to fight another day. So everything may not have been perfect. I know it wasn't in my life. And I know I was not always treated well. I was not prized. I was not favored. Like I said, I felt like the, the black sheep sometimes. I felt like the ghost child, the middle child. I know about all those different things. And there was things I experienced in school. There's things I have experienced from a racial perspective. Uh, I, you know, I've dealt with all kinds of different things. Amen. Even some people not liking me because I'm a Christian and they're not. So we all deal with all kinds of rejection. But are we going to let those things define us and who we are? That's the issue. Are we going to let those things define us? Or are we going to allow ourselves to see things according to God's perspective? Do you realize that the very things that were sent your way to reject you, a lot of times were planned by the enemy to prevent you from getting into your calling? And a lot of things also were sent your way to destroy you so you would never fulfill your calling. That's why we see over and over again in the Word of God, Moses and Jesus and Gideon and... um, Ezekiel and Elijah and all these different people throughout the Bible, Ruth and and, um, Naomi and Esther and all these different people went through trials and tribulations. A lot of those things geared to prevent them from getting into the promises of God and yet they stood firm in their faith and God was able to establish those things that he planned for their life. So those things, even though they were meant to reject us, to destroy us, to wound us, God was aware of them and yet we still stand. And if we're still standing, that means that God can still fulfill the things that he desires for our lives. 
So we are saved not through people. We are saved through faith and through the gift of God. And we are the precious product and fabric that God has ordained. Amen. Out of, when you have fabric, you're looking to make something. Amen. My mother was a seamstress. When she got fabric, she didn't just buy it so it could lay there in a roll over in the side of the house somewhere and just dry rot or, or, or be something to look good. My mom bought fabric. She meant business. She bought it from the store. I know because she had me come with her a lot of times to carry it. <laughs> she would go to the store. She would look through the different fabrics based upon what she wanted to make. She's like, okay, well, I'm making this kind of dress. They need it for the wintertime, so, okay, we need to buy some wool fabric. And then other times, oh, well, summer, it's summertime, so, you know, I'll get them something like cotton or something like that, you know, to be more appropriate for this. Oh, they need a, a wedding dress. I get them something a little shinier or silkier. It's going to be a wedding dress. Based upon what she was designing, amen, a lot of times that would help her formulate her plan of the kind of fabric that she needed to purchase. And once she brought that fabric, she would then look at, okay, what do I want the style to be? Is it going to be pants or is it going to be a skirt or is it going to be a dress? Is it going to be a gown? Is it going to be a man's suit, you know, a men's suit? Based upon what she envisioned she was going to make, she got all the accessories and everything as well to make everything fall into place. And it's the same with us. There's nothing that God hasn't foreseen and, and realize that we need for him to construct us, to perfect us, and to get us into our calling. So we just need to uh, align ourselves once again with the mind of Christ and say, hey, all these different things may have occurred, but he who has started something is going to fulfill it, and he's going to get me into my calling in Jesus' name. I'm going to give you one more passage of Scripture, and we'll close for today. 1 Corinthians 12. 12 through 25. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many or one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now have God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member... Where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body, which seem to be more feeble, are necessary. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Hallelujah. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. All right, so we see here that the body, amen, not your family, 
Not your social relationships, not your jobs, the schools, and all these things. When we go to these places, there's all kinds of dysfunction, disharmony, accusations, and backbiting, and betrayals. We see that stuff all over the place. But in the body of Christ, God has positioned us so that each one of us has a divine purpose, a divine placement, and a divine role in his household. Amen? And as we learn these things... We don't have to be uh, intimidated or jealous or feel that I'm rejected and everybody else is successful and prosperous and appreciated and there's nothing that I have to offer. Instead, we should see that each one of us has a role. And just because the role may not be visible doesn't necessarily mean that it's not vital. You know, one of the things I always enjoyed about Sister Kathy is that she wasn't one to be up on the pulpit with a microphone, but um, whenever I was going through something and I needed somebody to pray their way through, same with Carol, I was like, you ain't got to be there on the front lines with me necessarily, but I know I can send a text, pick up the phone and make a call, and I know where I'm heading into, if there's warfare, I know I got some troops behind me in the spirit putting some stuff up in the heavenlies that is doing something, amen? So that's the thing. Sometimes in the body of Christ, they think, oh, it's just the person that's out there in the front. But a lot of times, some of the stuff that is done, that is laying the way, especially in terms of the spiritual things, is just as important, just as vital. That's why I always love the fact, you know, I've had people come to me from time to time and say, oh, I have a prayer request. And depending on what it may be, uh, if it's not too intimate or too sensitive, sometimes I say, hey, can I share it with the church? Because I know if I tell Pam and Miss Carol and different people, Tony and Nikki, they're going to pray and they're going to engage the enemy in, in warfare and they're going to keep praying. And, and a lot of times until they hear a resolution, <laughs> you know, I know I, I can't tell you the number of times that I put something up here on the PowerPoint, a prayer request and Either Miss Carol or Nikki or Tony say, oh, what happened with so-and-so? And sometimes I feel bad because I don't really know the people. They might have emailed me from Texas or put something on their website, so I don't really know them. And sometimes they don't follow up with me to let me know what was the outcome of this. But I was like, hey, I'm going to still do my part and present the prayer request to those who I know will pray. So that's an example. You know, somebody that is a, a prayer warrior might be behind the scenes, but it's still something that's crucial to the body of Christ. And it goes on and on in other gifts. Some people are artistic. Some people are craft persons. Some people um, write. There's all these different talents. And none of us should feel that we're inadequate or we're not appreciated or somebody that is of importance to the body of Christ. Amen. That might be something you may experience out there in the world system, but within the body of Christ, as we see here, everybody is important to, to the body of Christ. And I've shared before, um, they have what they call phantom limb or ghost limb syndrome. And what I, this is actually a medically known syndrome that amputees experience. Amen. They've had times where somebody has uh, their, their leg cut off below the knee and they'll go back to a checkup with the doctor and the doctor say, are you okay? And they're like, I'm in excruciating pain. And the, and the doctor will say, well, you know, the surgeon will say, where's the pain? And the person will point to the part where they're, they're, they're point to air basically where their leg was and said, I'm feeling the pain right here. And they're sitting there pointing and waving their hand and they're hitting nothing but clear air 
And the doctor's like, you can't have pain there. There's nothing there. Your leg is cut off at your knee. And they'll say, doctor, I'm telling you, my shin is killing me or my feet are killing me. And they're like, for years, doctors initially like, what's wrong here? You can't have pain there. But what they ended up realizing is that the brain has to rewire itself so that it finally realizes there's nothing there to, ex- to experience pain. And it'll eventually, I guess, turn off the, the pain receptors or the impulses that come back to the brain to say, trigger a pain reaction. Amen. But it takes a while for the brain to rewire itself because the brain knows all its, the body parts and it expects all of them to function. And when that part is missing, the brain is like, I'm in pain. Send a pain reaction because I'm not whole. Same thing in the body of Christ. Sometimes somebody feels that they're not important to the body of Christ, but they're missing. The body of Christ as a whole is feeling it. Like, wow, something's missing here. I may not put my finger on it. I may not know it has to do with this person or that person, but the body is, as, as a whole is not right. I'm not right because something's not there. So that's the good thing is that everybody in the body of Christ has a vital role. Everybody is important to God. And we may have felt all these different forms of rejection out there in the world, but yet in the body of Christ, he has a vital role and position for each one of us. Amen? Hallelujah. I'm going to close with that today. We'll continue on uh, with a few more things next week, but I want to stop there today. So let's just close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Just reminded of what it said in the one verse. We are all accepted in the beloved. Amen. Accepted. All the rejection, all the neglect, all the abuse, all the things that have been spoken over us. Sometimes it's not even the spoken. Sometimes it's just the way people may have looked at us. And you can know They didn't say anything verbally, but I know what you're saying with that look. It's a look of contempt. It's a look of disdain. It's a look of accusations or people just have a way. Even in their body language, you can sense like, I'm talking to you, but I want to be away from you. So there's all these different things that many of us have encountered over the years. Amen. But God does not want us to be controlled or bound, limited, or carrying baggage from what people have done. He wants us to be whole. Heavenly Father, in the precious name of Jesus, we thank and praise you, Lord, once again for studying healing from rejection. And Lord, if there's things that we're still struggling with right now, Father, we ask you to heal us of those things, Father, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. We thank you right now, Father, that your hand will be upon us. And Father, there's things that might be buried deep into our hearts and our minds that we may not even be able to acknowledge that has hurt us. But we just praise you right now, Father, to um, just speak to us and show us the spirit of truth if there's anything still buried down in there, anything that will cause us, Father, to become bitter, anything that makes us angry, anything that uh, affects us, anything that's been spoken or done that stays with us, Father. I just praise and thank you, Father, for this and um, just ask you, Lord, to do a, 
mind, body, and heart and spiritual surgery upon us, Father, that we would be totally free from every weight and every shackle that will hinder us. And I thank you, Father, for your perfect peace to be upon us. Once again, Father, as we may have felt uh, rejection, let us come to the place where we feel fully accepted and appreciated in you. And we just thank you, Father, that even if people would never change, we just thank you, Father, we come to a place of wholeness in you that we can walk to the fullest potential that you have for us. We know, Father, that Jesus Christ himself was a man of sorrows, acquainted of uh, grief, rejected by many, and yet he chose to rise above those things, Father, to fulfill his purpose in your life. We ask you, Lord, to give us the strength and the peace and the endurance to do the same. And we thank you, Father, for this, that even as we would lose forgiveness and speak words of um, blessings upon those who have hurt us in the past, Father, that we will feel the burdens lifting off of us. And we thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.